You're listening to The S-Rank on the Triple S Studios Podcast Network. Hi everyone. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to give you a small content warning. Due to the nature of the works we will be discussing today, there are themes and mentions of death and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The S-Rank. I'm your host Aaron. And I'm your host William. And today we have a bit of a special episode just to shake things up a bit. So almost a year ago now, I was getting into Persona 5 Royal since it had just come out in March. Yeah, just after my birthday, I think. Anyways, truly amazing, fun game. Just so unbelievably stylish. So, you know, at the time I was getting Persona videos recommended to me on YouTube because, you know, Google knows everything about you. (laughs) One of these videos, though, was really interesting, and it was called Understanding the Velvet Room by Mehdi Not the Bad Guy. So credit to him for the inspiration of this episode, essentially. Um, But the video basically taught me that all the attendants in the Velvet Room over the course of the series all got their names from Frankenstein characters. Coincidentally, uh, around the same time, I sent Aaron a message saying that I have an amazing professor who would be interested in talking about video games. And she just so happens to be the foremost expert on Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. I initially met Bryn after I joined an English literature course at my university. And I don't think I ever had that much fun learning. (laughs) So for today's guest, we have the incredible genius Dr. Shoshana Bryn Jones Square. Well, Bryn, again, thank you so much uh, for joining us. It, I've, I'm so honored to meet you, and William has said so much about you. <laughs> um, uh, I told you. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, uh, to start off, just want to know your relationship with video games in general. Absolutely. Well, this will be weird for a gaming podcast, but I have very little experience, um, but I'm so fascinated. So it sort of came up when I was looking at using VR and AR in human rights uh, settings, human rights museums. So a prof of mine in Winnipeg was working on sort of the power of of gaming to sort of change people's minds and, and sort of literally bring about positive change. So I know it in the way of like looking at empathy. There's this um, father who created a video game for his son who was dying of cancer. And all it was, was sort of experiencing what it was like to um, sort of live with the son. And so the person would go in and experience that. So my sort of knowledge is through that. Um, and then my partner does a lot of it. So I'm always um, paying attention to that. But my my real interest is just the idea of, of sort of shared spaces and shared imaginative spaces um, where you can sort of try out new identities, uh, which in turn sort of expands empathy and perspective. And so I really think gaming is a really powerful way to do that. Um, and I've mentioned before in the future, I'd, I'd love to, um, there's a professor in, at the University of Manitoba who works on um, sort of neural engineering. And we're really wanting to hook up <laughs> the brains of people um, playing sort of, it could be um, Dungeons and Dragons or any any kind of game and this how the brain's going to sort of light up. So we predict that it'll light up in the areas associated with empathy because you're sort of trying out these new things with different people and creating new worlds. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a powerful way of connecting. And I think right now during the pandemic, uh, it's like a really good thing that uh, that people are doing. And I just admire it, but know very little. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, sign me up for that if they're hooking people's brains up to (laughs) video games. Um, 
Um, so William has also told me that um, you are an expert on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Where did that journey begin? Uh, it started, so first I uh, did my master's on Mary Wollstonecraft, who is the feminist mother of Mary Shelley, badass woman. Um, so she wrote Vindication of the Rights of Woman and just brilliant. And then, so I was writing about how she used certain narrative techniques to engage the reader's sympathy. Um, and in so doing, encourage them to like enact real positive change in the world. Um, so again, using narrative and story to bring about change. Um, and then for my PhD, I started looking at Mary Shelley's novels and noticed that there was a suicide in every single one of them. And I was like, that's pretty depressing. So if we're looking at sort of the power of narrative to change, physically change your mind, um, it also has the power to sort of influence you in a really negative direction. So um, I was looking at uh, Goethe's The Soros Young Goethe, which is one of the, I think it's 1774, so one of the major romantic texts. And in it, the suicidal hero eventually commits suicide. And what happened was people would read the book and then imitate um, the suicide. So they would like hold the novel and commit suicide or wear what the hero is wearing and commit suicide. So it just sparked just a spate of suicides so that uh, the author actually had to say, this is not a character you should mimic. <laughs> you know, this is an example of something you should not do. <laughs> Please don't kill yourself. Um, but again, it just was like, hey, this is how powerful narrative can be. And how do we sort of, sort of, work in the world of narrative and sort of immerse ourselves in it but not be like influenced to the point of killing ourselves so that's no good um so I sort of that's how I got into Mary Shelley and all of our novels um and there's there's just so much in Frankenstein that I did not realize like in this persona series that you guys are talking about um it's just mind-boggling <laughs> everything that's uh, connected so I'll let you ask questions about that but yeah Frankenstein just has everything in it right so it's connected to um sort of genetic engineering right now and sort of our fears of creating something through technology that we no longer control so um ai learning right so we've created these um robots but at some point they're just going to skyrocket and then we don't matter anymore <laughs> so sort of the, the dangers <laughs> of science so it's remarkable we can do so much so much with it but on the other side, if we don't have forethought, like Prometheus and Frankenstein, or sort of in the title, um, then we could be in big trouble later on. <laughs> so that's sort of we're dealing with that. It looks at like human relationships and sympathy. It looks like about like what is a self, what is the soul. So it's always talking about the spark of being. Where does that come from? Um, is it attached to the body? Is it separate from the body? Um, so it's about dreams and dreaming, um, just if you could argue that because she says that it's in a waking dream that the idea comes to her. Um, so also we talk about lucid dreaming, it's about the evolution of the self, it's about everything. So um, I wanted to write something just called Everything is Frankenstein. So that'll be my life's work, I think. But uh, yeah, it's so cool. So honestly, I'm just so thrilled to be here because I, as I showed Aaron earlier, I made like a little map for my, oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. brain looks like on the outside. Um, and so I, because as I was read, I, uh, reading about the Persona series, there's like reference to Carl Jung and Poe and um, memory and just everything's in there. So I'm excited to talk. And Trickster, the Trickster figure, I just, it's, everything's in there. It's nuts. It, everything is really in there. Um, and the way the Persona series does it is it's very especially in the first few games it's very it's very smart the way they implement the mythology and i think just like jrpgs in general have done a really good job at uh implementing mythology from all sorts of different uh cultures and just different uh even you know they even have the psychological mythology um 
but yeah, we'll we'll get into all of that. Um, I want to ask you, um, before we begin, uh, because you know, Persona is related to Frankenstein. Everything's Frankenstein. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite adaptation of the novel? You know what? I actually think it's the I think it's the first one, which is um, the first one in which Igor appears, right? So that was it, nineteen thirty-five. Um, and I, yeah, I just I love that one because of how the creature is represented. So instead of being instead of being represented as this sort of like evil monster, you get like a side of his humanity. Um, so there's a part where. Um, there's a little girl um, looking at flowers by the water and she's throwing um, the petals in and the creature is watching. He's like, oh, wow, that floats. That's pretty cool. And then he picks up the girl and drops her in and she dies. But it was out of this like innocent childlike thing. Like, oh, this floats. So now I'm going to give this a try. See if this floats. Um, but uh, I could be wrong about which one. I think that's the first one. But um, yeah, I love that's what I think is so cool, too, is it's this like eternal narrative that just keeps being told and retold. So the narrative structure is like epistolary so letters which you know from the persona series probably um but then it's also a framed narrative so you have like the de Lacy story in the middle and then you have the creature story and he tells it to victor who tells it to robert walton who tells it to um margaret savile whose name uh margaret walton savile is parallel to Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley so the idea being I noticed in the persona series that Margaret is like this controlling figure and like the author who's sort of behind the scenes able to manipulate things so yes. I thought that was very cool as well and uh, yeah like just all of the um so yeah what is it? in the velvet room there's the nameless uh, piano player and he's like the blind old man de Lacy in Frankenstein which yeah. is so cool and then there's yeah that Bellantana the singer and then Igor the host and yeah, just the connections just go all over the place. But I feel like I should wait till you guys give me some directions. <laughs> well, well, let's get right into that then. For our listeners who haven't played the Persona series, what are you doing here, uh, first of all? And second, we're going to talk about the Velvet Room today, which is essentially the, it's the hub world, essentially. But it's it's like the menu where you can essentially fuse your Personas and create new ones by fusing two of them and it's how you get stronger in the game essentially but narratively it's also a place between dream and reality um so we brought dr brin on to basically talk about the uh lucid dreaming aspect and how everything uh relates to uh the frankenstein novel so the first set of attendants in the velvet room which we see in persona one and two are uh, Belladonna and Nameless. And so Belladonna takes her name from Bella Lugosi, who obviously played Count Dracula. And he also played a version of Igor in, I believe it was the sequels of Frankenstein. I think it was The Bride of Frankenstein. And her character design also kind of looks like The Bride of Frankenstein. And then you have uh, this, uh, the piano player, Nameless, and as you were saying, he's the blind old man. And in the movie, he doesn't have a name, but he's clearly based off of the DeLacy character from the novel. And these characters kind of have a parallel, Belladonna and Nameless, because Belladonna, um, I don't think I mentioned this to you, but she covers her ears when she sings. And Nameless is blindfolded when he plays the piano. So I think I don't quite remember the first movie that well, but I think this calls back to a scene where the blind man says to the monster something like he can't see and the monster can't speak. Therefore they are friends. So I think that's, it's interesting how that's sort of uh, related there. 
Uh, is there any context within the novel that sort of relates to this? Oh, hell yes, 100%. So yeah, one of the <laughs> major themes in the novel is this like the creature whose external form or um, persona sort of um, doesn't reflect his inner self. So what he's trying to do is convince Victor Frankenstein to listen to him and hear his tale. At one point, he even covers Victor Frankenstein's eyes and says, just listen to me, hear me, so that he's sort of, yeah, not um affected by the external form um so yeah the whole novel is just about narrative and listening to a person's story in order to better understand and empathize with them um and so yeah that blind old man delacy is the only one in the novel who's able to sympathize with the creature because he can't see him um and so all of this too this idea um of different selves and confirming selfhood is so connected to uh, Jungian philosophy too, eh? So it's called the persona series. So obviously based on uh, Jung's the persona. So that social face that the individual presents to the world. So it's like this sort of mask that we present, uh, which makes me think of you were talking about um, Poe's The Mask of the Red Death earlier. And so yes. that one too, this idea of masks and the, the hidden um, and also what we present to the world. Um, so I think Frankenstein is this way of Mary Shelley exploring um, identity, and consciousness um, and trying to understand the difference between the self that we present to the world and the inner self. And if there's a way for those to harmonize in some way or if they're always going to be in conflict. Um, so I think that's really key. And then also I think Frankenstein's also sort of represents this um, just sped up evolution of self or a sped up evolution of a person. So um, when he's first born, he has synesthesia like William. Um, and so <laughs> <laughs> he says, I think I wrote down the quotation, actually, it was so beautiful, but um, yeah, he just said everything is indistinct and his sense of hearing and smelling are all mixed. Um, and so it's this sort of profusion of senses. And then he just slowly goes through the cycle of a human being. And as Mary Shelley is showing us this and these different cells, it's really a lot like the Persona series where it's almost teaching you enlightenment, like teaching you how to be a good person. And, and that is through experiencing many identities and being open to new identities. And this idea that, um, that our identities are fluid and changeable so, and not fixed. Um, so I think that <laughs> therefore connects with the idea. So when Mary Shelley in her author's introduction to the 19th, or sorry, 1831 edition of Frankenstein. Um, she writes this introduction um, and explains just that. So what she calls her idea <laughs> is a hideous progeny. So this is like the idea that she tries to have. In 1816, <laughs> Mary Shelley um, goes to Geneva, Switzerland with her husband, Percy Shelley, who's uh, sits around, not the nicest guy, um, and her um, stepsister, Claire Claremont, and Lord Byron is also there. So they're um, at the Villa Diodati. It's this uh, big, expensive place. Byron brings a pet bear, um, and then it rains a lot while they're there. So um, Byron's like, let's, let's think of a ghost story or something. So they're doing a bunch of drugs. They're hanging out. They're drinking. Um, and Mary Shelley just can't think of a story. And she's like thinking and she's thinking. And she is just this lab laborious thinking. And finally, she says, when I placed my head on the pillow, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed and guided me, gifting me successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. So this idea that she, her, her physical body is, is asleep. So you know how we're like paralyzed when we sleep, but her like conscious mind is still awake and capable of framing narrative. So her dream then it's as if she is sort of, sort of 
<laughs> sort of been able to manipulate what's going on in her dream. So that is what the novel itself is, right? She just quickly, she says that the novel is just a transcript of what she um, was able to dream. Um, and so again, the novel itself can just be seen as just like the Persona series existing in this realm between um, real and unreal um, sort of dream and reality, mind and matter. So I think the Persona series is really smart as it seemed to, it seems to capture like a lot of those details of Frankenstein so, so well. Um, so I will pause there and see if I've answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, have, you have, you answered a lot of questions really. <laughs> you were mentioning uh Carl Jung and my last experience with him was uh I think in AP Psych in grade 12 so <laughs> it, it, it's been a little while but uh the fun part about that guy in the Persona series is that uh his writings I think in the Red Book he writes about a spirit guide and this spirit guide is the very first character that we see in the whole series um and that is a man named Philemon and he's essentially the god of the overarching series even though he's only in the first two games his his philosophy is all very like i am you you are me we're one and um it, it, that later you know became in the series i am the famous phrase i am thou thou art i um so what's the relationship i suppose between Zhang and mary shelley in terms of uh, was was Shelley inspired by Zhang? I don't even know how the timeline even works up there. Is is was there any sort of relation there? He was too late. So Mary Shelley published Frankenstein in eighteen eighteen, and yet Young, I don't think, was around. He was born in eighteen seventy five. So right. it's sort of any of that sort of theor theorizing is more us sort of placing it on the narrative, but at the same time she's still talking about the same things that Young is, but not, um, yeah, she hasn't been influenced by him. So I think it's pretty cool. It's almost like a precursor to it, uh, which is neat. Um, but yeah, this idea of the persona versus the anima, um, and then the ultimate goal being um, to develop a more realistic and flexible persona that helps you navigate society, but that doesn't conflict with the ideal self. So, so what's a problem is when the persona just becomes the whole person. So you associate yourself only with like, uh, your role as a teacher or something, whereas what he argues for is this flexible, changeable, fluid persona that can shift but still hold on to that core self. Um, and then, yeah, that filament is so cool. So he's, yeah, he's much like Prometheus. So the novel's called Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. And Prometheus is that trickster figure in Greek myth who stole fire from the gods to give it to humanity. Um, so that's the birth of civilization. Um, and then, yeah, also a trickster figure, meaning that um, he floats rules um, and he um, champions humanity. Um, so what he seems to me, and I think that's what it says in the Persona series, is he's like this uh, this spirit guide almost, right? So like, hmm. like he's guiding you to enlightenment almost, which I thought was really cool. Um, what else did I have written down about him? Spirit guide. Um, Oh yeah, I like that idea that you can grant the wild card. Do you get that thing I thought was really cool? So we can grant the wild card to yeah. Do you know much about that? I thought that was really cool. Well, in the series, the wild card is essentially a umbrella term for the protagonist. It essentially refers to the ability that they are able to control multiple personas rather than their teammates, which are only able to use one usually. Okay, that's really cool. And would you say then that like, like, do you think the novel is, or the novel, sorry, I'm used to talking about literature, do you think it's like actively trying to do something? Is it actively trying to teach you how to sort of achieve enlightenment and to like 
transcend the self and that sort of thing? Do you think it's intentional or do you think that's something that I have just inserted in there? Because No, uh, absolutely. Um, no, every game in some aspect has... Igor, especially the servant of Philemon, he essentially wants the player to achieve enlightenment by the end of the game. And through the uh, assistance of all of these attendants here, um, they sort of help the player get to that by the end of the game. What I find interesting is that it's probably just because it's the most recent memory I have of playing Persona is uh, Persona 5, where actually they lead the protagonist on this path of false enlightenment where really they've been guiding him to do the wrong thing the entire time, because in that game, Igor is actually uh, possessed. So <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just like narratively, it's they, they wanted to shake it up, I guess, because it, it, you know, after the fourth game, they probably want to, you know, change things up. Totally. That's so interesting, yeah. though, too, because it's kind of the same thing, though, showing that you can achieve enlightenment through these means, but that can also be manipulated. Um, just like I think memory seems really key to the, to the whole series, too. Um, and so this idea of also the unreliability of memory um, and unreliable narrators as well, which is so key to Frankenstein, too. So when you I'm asking you questions, but would you say <laughs> that it. like <laughs> memory is important to the series in any way? Is that something you've noticed? Yeah, memory, it's interesting. And it's the only time I've ever really seen this played out in a game where in Persona 5, especially towards the end of the game, there's a large section that just gets glossed over. And then you're only able to experience that section as a memory later on. So I, I it's it's almost, it was confusing to me the first time around experiencing it. But there was a whole plan that you as your character implemented with your teammates that you as the player don't get to see until it's already been executed. So they, they play around a lot with that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was going to bring up the palaces. Yes. Um, In Persona, and now I'm about to out myself completely. I have not played a <laughs> single Persona game, but I am a huge fan. Um, they have these locations called palaces, which are like these warped perceptions of negative emotion within people's minds. Um, and they can like, uh, it's like strong negative thoughts uh, that warp people's perceptions of things into actual hazards for them. And uh, as far as I remember, the series can get pretty serious into there. A lot of the negative and corrupt thoughts that are brought up there are from some of the characters' upbringing and stuff like that. So a lot of that is attached to their memory. And I think that is part of what makes those um, sections so effective for the players. You get really attached to the characters... And then all of a sudden you're within that character's palace and you see what they were suffering through their memories like that, too. If I might add, that sort of just brings up, um, brings to mind Futaba's palace uh, in particular. Her palace uh, is different because she's the only character that isn't a villain that has a palace. And her palace essentially is a pyramid. Um, and Futaba is someone that has lost her mother and she was for a large part of her life blamed for her mother's death. Uh, in her palace, uh, she has a very distorted memory of her mother in life because the, the boss in that palace is her mother deformed as a monster. And essentially what you do as a team is 
tried to restore Futaba's original memory of her mother, which was this caring figure. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> this so... is crazy. Which Very is, yeah, crazy. as you guys know, exactly Mary Shelley. It's the novel is, yeah, many argue is uh, the creature is a representation of her mother and like, and her guilt for um, having killed her or do, do you guys know the story that um mary wollstonecraft died 10 days after giving birth yeah you know that yeah. um mary shelley so um that is just brilliant like her novel yeah so some have argued too as the novel is her working that out yeah that is just crazy and then the idea of palaces also as like work uh, perception and negative emotions is so interesting too that idea of because it fits with like mental illness and that idea of the default mode network which we can never shut down so that's associated with like our negative thinking and it just spirals into you know you're worried that you said something weird to someone and then you think about it and you think about it and you think about it um and so what uh sorry i just have to make this going on so i was thinking that so these palaces represent that but then the game itself is like a form of psychotherapy where you're sort of looking at what's kept secret so again and then it's also you said like the gothic theme too right so it's what is it set in an abbey or there's an abbey and there's this idea of, of yeah the secret and the hidden and the unconscious and entrapment and all this stuff so it's uh I cannot get over all of the connections with it but um I think I had one more point about that but I'm gonna let you guys talk again because it's your podcast <laughs> <laughs> Hi everyone, it's William. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. If you are, consider following us on Twitter and Instagram at the S Rank Podcast. This week, I've got a question for you. If you could only play one game for the rest of your life, what game would you choose? Anyways, I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode and buy yourself something nice. You deserve it. I, I guess shifting gears back to the Velvet Room. Um, so Igor is this constant character throughout the series. He's the only one that is actually in all of the games. And what I found interesting about the Igor character is that he's a bit of a Mandela effect because he wasn't in the novel and he was actually only in the first film as a character known as Fritz. And then the Igor thing sort of happened later on. What is exactly the significance of the... Igor character in terms of gothic literature and Mary Shelley. Yeah, I, I'm so interested in that for sure. Also, just like the reason why um, he was added as a character too, I'm so interested in. Um, but uh, yeah, so he's kind of like a stock character, right? And hunchback, lab assistant for many sort of gothic villains. Um, he's kind of become like a, a composite of that. And I, I'm actually, I, I, it's a question that I'm thinking about that I don't know the answer to, to be honest with you, but I think um, the significance in um, the Velvet Room and in the Persona series, many have argued that um, it's, he's kind of like a distorted version of ourselves. So this sort of like realistic representation of humanity, but, um, and then that, so this like reality um, beside, and then there's the Philemon character who's this idea of spirit. Um, so I don't know if it's this idea of corporeality and body or or what the, I, I really, that's something I honestly would like to look into more, but do you guys have thoughts on it? And that might spark more ideas for me. Yeah, um, you, you mentioned that uh, he was originally supposed to be a warped view of humanity. I don't know if that's exactly why, but many have argued that. That's actually really interesting to me considering Igor ending up uh someone who's leading you down what you were saying earlier Aaron a false path of enlightenment it's almost like the corruptibility of humanity how they're very changing which goes even further to the concept of the persona 
how that is ever changing. So Igor himself, whoa, that is just all the way down. <laughs> Who are the writers of the this, by the way? Like, is it are they different each? season what are they called series um i don't know exactly who wrote the game essentially but i do know that uh lots of the ideas about the velvet room especially the velvet room changing um in every game that was implemented by the series director uh hashino um and i think he's been working on the game since persona 3 i'm i trying to find his first name actually yeah because you have just such a deep knowledge of of mary shelley and frankenstein to create such like a because yeah i could not believe like the details that go into this too and um yeah it's just mind-boggling and i guess oh yeah so we didn't really get to talk too much about like so the velvet room is is this room that's so is, is the idea that philomen and then this nep nep what's his name <laughs> oh uh near lethotep <laughs> think yes yeah and so they have like a a wager that humanity um is sort of whether they're gonna either transcend or uh, destroy themselves is that i think that's right yeah and i I think that is i think that's the device of the first game i think that's That's the first game game okay so it's not something that goes throughout okay i'm not sure But yeah, and then yeah, this idea that Philemon, um, like uh, Prometheus, then is he creates the Velvet Room as this space to help them, um, sort of indirectly. Is that kind of how it goes? That's that's exactly how it goes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. And then um, and so then there are, and it's sorry, the Velvet Room is also based on um, Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, right? <laughs> Which is very cool. That's what we believe. That's the that's the working theory. <laughs> oh my god, it makes perfect sense. Just yeah, because it's that. Um, so Pro- Prince Prospero, from what I remember, um, there's a plague, and so um, he locks himself in an abbey with his nobles, and then they leave the the poor people outside to die, um, and then they have those um, seven rooms, um, and then so yeah, one is if I read that it's uh, related to like life cycles too. So like the first room is blue for birth and purple for youth and green for adolescence and orange for adults and white for old age, violet for impending doom. And then finally like the black illuminated with like red. So again, it's like that life cycle in uh, Mary Shelley too. Um, and then in um, Poe's short story, what happens is then this uh, character that's masked right and um he can't see his face and he's cloaked comes in and everyone's terrified of him but they let him pass through all the different rooms and then he ends up in the black room and is at which point um who confronts him again oh yeah prospero and prospero confronts him he turns around and he just screams in horror and falls to his death which are just it dies which is also what happens when Einstein first sees his creation and the creation is supposed to be he, he hoped it would help humanity to be a form of like representative of human but it's this distorted version um and again this idea of a distorted version of himself so both of them see themselves and are shocked with horror and uh that's the end of things but so I love that idea so then that is what the Velvet Room in the Persona series is based on right yes so I I believe when I was researching it very late last night, <laughs> um, the the Velvet Room is actually the that's the last room in the Mask of the Red Death, and because the room is completely covered in velvet fabric, and um, I find it interesting why they decided to go with the color blue then, which is the color of the birth room. Ah, oh, that's interesting. 
I wonder why it would do. I guess is it. It's, it's a it's a combination of the first and the last one. I, uh, you know, it's it's the life and death. Yeah. Oh, I love. I mean, that. the Velvet Room is a place that if you get a game over, if you die, this is the place where you start over at. Is the Velvet Room. So I think, you know, it, it's definitely not a coincidence. <laughs> they they definitely uh, gave lots of thought about it. You mentioned about uh, Victor Frankenstein's guilt and essentially what he needed to do to basically absolve himself of the guilt. Uh, lots of the encouragement that he got to basically become a better person, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was from his fiancée, Elizabeth Lavenza. And... That leads into the next set of Velvet Room attendants, because in Persona 3, we have this attendant named Elizabeth, who is also, um, you know, he's uh, she's sending letters to the player uh, in Persona 3 to basically absolve themselves of sin. So you have this uh, almost direct parallel from the Elizabeth character to Elizabeth Lavenza. Yes. That's very cool, too. Um, and yeah, I think that's so important, too, because she is the sort of uh, vital force that at first keeps Victor from uh, turning to absolute madness. And she's always there when he's he's about to lose it. Um, and so the novel itself is also about the like power of human sympathy and connection and how exactly through it can be led uh, to, <laughs> to um, like a higher version of self. But then on the other hand, if it's sort of refused to um, sort of that that leads to that idea of exile and exclusion, like the creature experiences you're on the exile of uh, sort of the outskirts of society, um, isolated, no human connection, which, which often makes it difficult to achieve sort of um, enlightenment and experience new selves because you're completely on your own. So yeah, it's this idea of the like sympathetic force trying to overcome that sort of insanity that is come from that sort of obsession which is um out of his desire to sort of usurp the role of god right um so i think she's that yeah really important force in it and what else sort of are there other roles that she has in it then that uh, i could try and make some connections well as far as i remember she is mostly she mostly gives the player their side quests essentially so she's not entirely related to the main story but she is there to give the player extra missions um and there to basically uh encourage them again lead to the path of enlightenment um to basically complete the game yeah. totally but then gets really little recognition for it like women generally do so yeah that's another thing of the gothic too is this idea of sort of women um in trouble or in danger as well um and it's, it's interesting to me that there are so like there are female characters in Frankenstein, but um, I don't think any of them. Oh, I guess Margaret Savile is alive at the end, <laughs> but uh, Justine is Justine yes. is a character too, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. So well All the female characters die. It's so awful. I know. <laughs> so and then again, it's about so because Frankenstein is also suggested so Victor Frankenstein like penetrating the recesses of nature. So this idea of the um, overcoming of the feminist aspect um, because of this like male drive to control the world and create. So um, do you find there is like, is there like a feminism at all built into it, um, into the game or meh? I, okay. I, I might, I, this, this might expose me as a bad writer. Personally, I haven't found it. I haven't found it. But to be fair, I, it's been a while since I've played the games, but I'm, I'm sure 
Well, I, I'm actually not sure. I could look. For <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to know everything. I was like, yeah, when I was preparing for this, I was like, oh my God, I need to know this, this, and this. Oh, I remember the connection. So you talked about Igor. I had so much I wanted to say and then forgot what I was talking about. But he's also just that, like, he's most, like the creature in Frankenstein. So this sort of deformed version of humanity who's um, treated poorly and exiled and isolated. And so one interesting I thought of so Prospero is the prince in Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. And then that is also the name of the protagonist in Shakespeare's The Tempest. Um, and Prospero is this like, um, he can use magic uh, to manipulate nature and reality. Um, and he uh, eventually frees Ariel, which is spirit or the numinous. Um, and what happens, but then he enslaves that same spirit um, and also enslaves this um, Caliban, who is also sort of this deformed, uh, persecuted creature and enslaved. Um, so it's as if the Prospero figure is sort of um, imprisoning spirit, right? So he's this sort of like Frankenstein or Victor Frankenstein figure just kind of manipulate and control, right? And then there's this sort of anima, the, the female sort of spirit that, that hopes to be free. Um, and so then if we're thinking about Prospero um, in the Red Death one too, it's sort of a, a, I don't know if that fits in the same way, but it's just interesting that there's this idea of controlling and manipulating nature in all of them too, eh? Yeah. Oh, and then doesn't the, doesn't the, don't the rooms like they, um, sort of sorry shape to the person's persona or something yeah I don't know so that. starting uh that was a concept i think they implemented starting persona 3 um basically the room changes to match what's in the player's heart i believe is what they refer it to it narratively but it also matches the theme of the game i think in persona 3s in particular it's an elevator that is constantly going up and it never stops um, and there is a large clock at the back of the elevator, which is also mentioned in Mask of the Red Death, that there is an ever ticking clock. When you were bringing up potential feminist aspects of Persona series, it reminded me that Persona 3 is actually the first game in the series to have a, a, the option of a female protagonist. So when you do choose that protagonist, instead of Elizabeth as the attendant, you get the male attendant, Theodore. He's basically sort of an unofficial character in a way that they sort of threw in, but the name is derived from uh, the Dr. Theodore Bomer in the Ghost of Frankenstein film. So in that film, Bomer is the former teacher of Ludwig Frankenstein, and now he's the assistant. Um, so he's a bit envious, and he basically helps the Igor character in the end put his brain into the Frankenstein monster um, because he believes that he should be in charge of the lab instead. Um, it's it's not so much reflected in the game that he is this evil character, but um, in the game, he basically... It's reflected by Theodore thinking that he knows more of the human world than the player does, even though he's totally clueless. So that's sort of the parallel there, I suppose. That's so interesting. And you see one of, I remember reading about like, like these two characters that are like split. So when they're split they're but then they both die and then they become one character. Is that with Lavenza or in Theodore? That's, and... that's uh, Persona 5. So we're at Persona 3 right now, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> Not to worry. <laughs> 
Okay, that's amazing. So that yeah, the the connections are are insane there. And then I was just gonna get back to, you and then you can get me back on where I was supposed to be. I just also like the idea, like of the rooms. So in one place it says the life cycles, but I, they're also like um, like the the human mind. It's like yourself, right? So you know when you dream, often the house rep or the room represents um yourself. And so there's a lot of meditation where they say, so you need to empty out. So your room is this this um yourself that you need to empty out so um get rid of all negative thoughts and attachments and all this stuff so you can achieve that sort of higher consciousness and oneness um that seems to be yeah the the purpose of the persona series too um and so i think that's really significant that each room could be a representation of that oh it's also the number seven um do they talk because i was thinking it's like obviously it's a associated with luck but then it's also a prime number but the thing i thought was coolest is that it's associated with memory um because i don't know if you guys know this but like we remember like we can remember seven things usually that in our short-term memory um so that's why phone numbers are usually seven digits long not usually they are seven digits long and so i'm wondering if and because the um the persona series is connected to the idea of memory and the unreliable ability of memory or the pain of memory. Um, I think it's really interesting that the rooms themselves reflect um, how much we can hold in our short term memory. I don't know if that's significant at all, but I think I have a shorter term memory than most. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember anyone's phone number. <laughs> no, I know. I well, that's what's so interesting about memory too, though. It's it's like short-term memory in mine it sucks so badly, but then I can remember like a friend's phone number from when I was like five. Uh, not five. I was wearing phone. Okay, a little precocious. <laughs> um, but so it's this idea too of the like the memory that we can have ingrained versus this short-term memory. And so I wonder if if this persona series too is about sort of um, the repetition, repetition. So repetition being something that that eventually comes into a habit that eventually becomes like part of our neural hardware. So um, this idea that you're trying out, trying out all these different selves, but there's, is it a bit repetitive in any way, like going through each series? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's the combat of the, of the, just the genre in general, JRPGs, the combat is notoriously repetitive. It's like you, as you go through the game, it's just you're basically doing the same thing over and over and over again to get to the end. Um, but the magic of it, I think, is just the the different designs and the different inspirations, all the enemies and all the characters uh, are taken from. And that's, I think, really where the charm comes from. But other than that, you know, the gameplay, the core gameplay, very, very very repetitive <laughs> I, I wonder if it's on purpose though too eh? because so the reference to poe and then i was thinking of the raven who's also a trickster figure um but that idea of that repetition of nevermore in that poem um and the neuroscience of like repetition too like i was saying so if you um i i rap really poorly so that but then when i repeat the lyrics i finally memorize them and then again like i was saying they're just sort of automatic now they don't they don't have to just um i don't have to pull and find them it's automatic so i wonder if that's part of like um the series is so you are still like experiencing different things through your life but you're also practicing sort of how to be a self and each time you're sort of getting better at it or something I have no idea but um, I think it's such an interesting idea um Aristotle and Rabbi Sachs talk a lot too about about um the importance of repetition and and how that's just sort of um sort of key to life and everything is imitation too oh 
the split selves in it. I know we're not there yet, but then obviously that connects with the doppelganger theme um, in Frankenstein too, how are like Frankenstein is just, um, uh, or the creatures of doppelganger of Frankenstein and everyone's sort of an imitation of other self, which also fits with the idea of it being a dream world because um, you can also argue that every, every one of them is just an aspect of Mary Shelley's uh, self and personhood, right? So um, Victor Frankenstein is sort of a more masculine or something in, in sort of traditional terms. Um, and then, yeah, the, the creature is this like how she feels. She actually felt like she felt like a monster. At one point she had smallpox and got you know, scarred. And so she actually said in her letters that she felt monstrous and didn't feel like people understood her in society um, in her life. So um, again, this idea of identification and the importance of being understood and known. Um, and then again, so by trying out all these personas or whatever, you're just gonna achieve like a greater understanding of possible identities and modes of being maybe. I'm making all this up maybe, but anyway, I'm so, I like, honestly, I just lost my mind this morning reading about it. So thank you for having me on. It means a lot. Of course. So you were mentioning the way that Mary uh, Shelley felt about herself feeling monstrous. Now there's this character, Margaret Seville, which is a self-insert character of Mary Shelley. Is that, is that correct? Or it can, so in, um, so in Mary Shelley, Margaret Saville is sort of the, the sister of Robert Walton. So Robert Walton is um, at the beginning of the narrative, he's like going to the North Pole um, and to discover um, the lights and it's sort of a lot of very fantastical um, and then while he's on his um, voyage, he is always sending letters to his sister, Margaret Saville. Um, so she sort of gets all of the narrative um, at once kind of thing. So yeah, so she does, and people do say again, that is, can be seen as herself given the like Mary Shelley, Mary Wilsbrough Shelley and Margaret Wilson Saville. So um, absolutely. And then what was, what else were you asking me? <laughs> well, yeah, no, I just find that interesting because the Margaret character is definitely the most mature out of all the attendants that come through the Velvet Room. And she does seem to know more than the rest of them do about humanity and about what's going to happen. And she gives them items uh, that they need in order to progress. And she can even jump into timelines of different games, which is like so unheard of. I love I love that stuff when they do that. Um, <laughs> uh, let's move forward, though, to Persona 5. This is the split cell attendant that you were talking about. Um, so Caroline and Justine. Um, so Justine was named after Justine Mort uh, Moritz, which is the child who was uh, wrongly convicted of the Frankenstein monster's murder, yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, Victor doesn't do anything about it. That's awful. And then uh, Caroline was Caroline Beaufort, the mother of Victor Frankenstein. Um, so the thing that's interesting about Justine and Caroline is that Justine is more aggressive and Caroline is more calm and proper. And I sort of only made this connection last night where Caroline, uh, I think, is described in the novel as the ideal 18th century woman. Um, which I think is why she's more soft-spoken and mature in the game, whereas Justine is more childish and, and aggressive, I think. That that sort of lines up. <laughs> it does, absolutely. So yeah, sorry, I was going to say a bunch of things. Yeah, that idea of the like ideal woman of sensibility was so key in, the, in that time. Um, so Mary Wollstonecraft, a lot of her novels, uh, Mary of Fiction, and Mariah, um, Mariah is actually a gothic tale, which is cool. But um, yeah, they're all sort of about raging against that 
sentimental ideal brought about by um, the masculine culture. So the woman is supposed to be like thin and weak and quiet and dependent and like thin to the point of death. So that like the ideal woman was basically a dead woman, which is really messed up. Um, so yeah, that is absolutely true. And like she, her values are, you know, she wants Victor to marry his cousin <laughs> slash is whatever it is, whichever version it is. But um, whereas, yeah, Justine is kind of, um, it could be representative of the sort of rebellious female spirit and, and the ideal, but crushed by Victor Frankenstein because he could have stepped in and said, you know, uh, she didn't actually do this. Um, my creature did, slash I did, but um, but he doesn't. So I guess you could see it too as like the the ultimate result of being a female in that period, right? It's uh, it's not very hopeful. Um, but I also like, so she doesn't have as much of a, a part in the novel, it sounds like, as she does in, in here, but I like, I, it makes sense that that's what they've done with the character because um, she is, she is shown to be a lot. I have to think about that a bit more. I'm not going to say more because I'm, I have to, I'm having me really interested. So also she's associated with like justice and the law, obviously, which is why. Is there anything like connected to? Well, Justine and Caroline uh, appear as prison wardens in the game. That's their that's their outfit, essentially. So that totally lines up. And and they use guillotines to execute personas in order to fuse them. So Are so serious? I'm serious. This is all connected. I I swear. And in the end, when they form into one, which is the character Lavenza they get the player to execute them using the guillotines and then Justine and Caroline turn into Lavenza. Spoilers if you haven't played Persona 5. Although, again, what are you doing here if you haven't? <laughs> this is crazy. I'm getting so sorry. Um, absolutely. So this person who has written these has just done such a, a fantastic job of, and it also the idea too, is they're really underdeveloped female characters. So it's almost as if like you have to put them together in order to have like a fully developed female character. So Justine is maybe the more rebellious spirit. And then you have the, the feminine side and then they come together as this like fully formed uh, female character. So potentially I could make that up completely, but, and then I want to say one thing from previously, sorry, we were still talking about, um, being able to sort of, okay, so uh, Margaret Saville being able to sort of um, go in and give letters and manipulate things. So again, it's, and she's, she's the author of events, which is like Mary Shelley in her lucid dream, being the author and manipulating things and changing characters and affecting outcomes. So it's fantastic, you guys. I, I just love it. I love how many connections that we were able to put together today. There's so many, there's so many aspects of it. You got, you got the Carl Jung, mythology you got mary shelley you've you've got poe and in the recent game royal they introduced uh lovecraft into the extra part of the game which we haven't even <laughs> gone over but we we definitely we definitely can uh in the future for sure we'd love to have you back on eventually we could talk about a different jrpg i'm sure there's many that are related to different aspects of mythology and psychology it's just so so elaborate and it's so interesting i know I, I love that idea of um yeah just finding connections and patterns and then yeah, it's it's mind-boggling like um i've learned so much and there's so much i want to put in so next time and it doesn't have to be it can be on any like literature it doesn't have to be mary shelley or anything i'm obsessed with everything so <laughs> if you if you need someone i'm always here it was a total pleasure again thank you so much for joining us we, we really appreciate your wisdom and insight it's Awesome. 
Hey guys, thanks for tuning in this week. We upload new episodes every Saturday, and we are now on Apple Podcasts. Um, you can also find us on Spotify or our website, triplestudios.ca. We'd like to thank Dr. Bryn Jones Square for joining us this week, and Medi Not the Bad Guy for giving us a cool topic to talk about. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, please follow us at the S Rank Podcast, and we'll keep you up to date on all of our projects. Thanks, and see you next week. <laughs>